0: Joining us now on the podcast is author and journalist Dan Egan, whose book The Death and Life of the Great Lakes has earned great acclaim and was one of the notable books for the big read here in Door County a couple of years ago. And who has also done incredible work on invasive species in the Great Lakes, including things like the Asian carp, um, the water levels of the Great Lakes, and has been nominated for Pulitzer Prize for his work when he was working with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Dan joins us from a minivan in a parking lot somewhere around Milwaukee, I assume?
1: Yeah, yeah, in Milwaukee.
0: <laughs> well, Dan, thanks for joining us today on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Last time I saw you, you were up here for the Celebrate Water Conference uh, at the Landmark Resort in Egg Harbor. That was a gathering of hundreds of people in the same room together. That seems kind of otherworldly now. Yeah. (laughs) What have you been up to in the months since then?
1: Uh, I'm working on another book. I'm still on staff at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, but I haven't been writing stories for well over a year now. They were gracious enough to give me a Leave of absence, and I'm on a, a fellowship program at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where they're they're basically funding my salary, and I'm working on a, a book about um, phosphorus, and you know, kind of a biography of phosphorus, how it was discovered, what it was early used for in the early days, how it's being used and abused now, and what that means for our waters not just in the great lakes but globally
0: yeah that was a kind of a big issue around here about 10 years ago and it's kind of faded from uh, the front pages of course um tell me tell our listeners what phosphorus is and and why why you're focused on it and why we should be concerned about it
1: well when i and I, there's a car horn going off in the background i hope that's not disturbing
0: no, i'm I'm not noticing yeah, it we're okay. good
1: okay um there's a robbery in front of So us um, <laughs> but so when i wrote the uh when I wrote the Great Lakes book, I did a chapter on Lake Erie and just kind of how it was, you know, declared the Dead Sea uh, back in the 1960s, and then resuscitated through aggressive phosphorus control programs, really specifically dealing with with uh, municipal sewage discharges and more importantly uh, detergents. You know, back back then, detergents were just loaded with phosphates and and they did some interesting experiments up in Canada where they were dosing whole lakes with various chemicals to see what be triggering these algal blooms. And they zeroed in on phosphorus And these pictures that they were able to take of a, of a lake that had literally been cut in half with like a polyurethane curtain. Huh. And one, one half got, got phosphorus and I believe the other half might have gotten nitrogen, but I think it got nothing. And they went up in a helicopter and that did way more than any kind of a chart or scientific presentation could do as far as persuading legislators that they had to reformulate detergent. And a lot of people thought at the time that this was going to lead to pestilence and ruin because, you know, we need cleanliness. And uh, we still have, my shirts are, well, I wouldn't use my shirts as an example, but shirts are still pretty clean (laughs) compared to, you know, the pre-detergent days. So they they reformulated it and the lake came back back, fast, you know, really fast. And so that got me interested in in just kind of like the history of phosphorus because how it was discovered is a really interesting story and um, and then how it was weaponized. And so it's, it's taken me to a lot of places and I'll, I've been working on it for a year and a half and I'll probably be working on it for another year, I would say.
0: Wow. Maybe at least. Is this how is this so, work on this book differing from your your previous book? which I, you know, I'm guessing a lot of that came directly from a lot of the reporting you had done over the years. Yeah, Is this kind of the same way?
1: No, no. (laughs) And so when I was writing that Great Lakes book, I was grumbling to myself that it was really kind of, difficult to you know go back in and take 10 years worth of newspaper work and repurpose it reframe it in some places in some places it, it went in almost verbatim um you know by the paragraph not by the chapter <laughs> um but it, it kind of felt like i was rehabbing uh, a house and you know i was confined like i would try to change something up and i'd realize that i just took out a load-bearing wall and that it had to be structured that way and i thought boy would it be fun to build a book from scratch. And so I got my wish and it's it's worse. It's more work. <laughs> it's an ungodly amount of work. So, um, you know, in some ways it's fun to be traveling and learning. In a lot of ways it's fun to be doing that, but it's also uh, just a lot of work to, you know, try to do this subject justice and, you know, make sure that it's right, but also interesting because if nobody reads it, what's the point?
0: Yeah. And like you said, you had um, with your Last book, you were on staff at the Journal Sentinel writing all the time. Right now, you have not been doing that um, week to week, day to day in the process of this book. So it's, it's a much different construct. Um, speaking of your work with the Journal Sentinel, um, any listeners who don't know, um, your work has been invaluable over the last really going back 15 years at least, um, on the, the invasive species of the Great Lakes, the health of the Great Lakes, the water levels of the Great Lakes. I remember the Journal Sentinel used to have this great kind of landing page that had links to so much of the work you were doing. Um, they really seem to have given you great leeway back then, and I can't imagine that any reporters out there are getting that kind of um, ability to zero in on a topic like you were able to.
1: Yeah, you know, it was kind of a vision of George Stanley, the in- he was the managing editor when, when he gave me that beat back in 2003 or 2004. And he's now the editor of the paper. And and Marty Kaiser, who was the editor at the time, he also was very enthusiastic about the idea of covering the Great Lakes as a beat. So I got a lot of leeway. And, you know, that was a luxury that may or not exist anymore, given how thin the staffing is, compared to what it was, you know, 15 years ago. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, it just kind of gave me carte blanche to just write. I think the one of the first stories I did was kind of a survey. We had a really bad sewage runoff event, or even, I think, several events in the spring. It might have been 2004 or something. And I just had a—this is what really kind of what got me into this. I just had just a natural question. It's like, well, Milwaukee's so bad. What's it like in, you know, Gary and Detroit and Cleveland and Toronto and Buffalo and Duluth? <laughs> And um, and they said, well, yeah. Why don't you why don't you kind of do a survey of you know what makes Milwaukee different? And so I spent just a few weeks on it, probably. And you know, we came to the conclusion that Milwaukee, you know, sewage overflows are bad, but Milwaukee has actually done a pretty good job. And you know, the the MNSD, the sewerage district down here, is getting arguably you know blasted in in some in some corners of the media, um, for being an irresponsible steward of, you know, these of the lakes and and it, it wasn't really true at all. Hmm. And and that opened up the editor's eye, I think, a fair amount. I remember the editor, Marty Kaiser, came up and, and thanked me. He said, you know, sometimes we just get our blinders on and we don't we don't think we need to take them off and and look around and he said whatever you know whatever you're interested in uh in terms of covering the lakes i'm all for and then it was not long after that that george stanley suggested become a beat
0: yeah well and the work you were doing was so helpful at that time i was just starting writing for the pulse and uh there were you know there's invasive species and all these issues trickle down here we're surrounded by water and it's easy to look at it locally and just talk to the people up here in Door County about what they're facing, but it was great to get is all the work you were doing was could trickle down into what we were facing in Door County. And then you find out, well, in Georgian Bay, they're, they're talking about a lot of the same things in different parts of the Great Lakes. They're, they're talking about the same thing. So you could learn from that a little bit. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. I think that was kind of the wisdom that these editors had was that what matters in Milwaukee matters in Duluth and Green Bay, and, you know, all across the lakes. And so they saw it as an opportunity to kind of have you know, a paper such as ours, like, help out you know, how many people are in the basin, 37 million or whatever. It, it, like, they saw it as a big public service. And so it was wise, and I was lucky to be in the right place at that time.
0: Yeah, and to be able to zero in on a topic like that and have the space to write the the long features and the detailed stuff because there's a lot of science into it. There's um, so many different, you know, it's Canada, it's the U.S., it's different states. There was so much going on at that time. I mean, oh, there always is, but at that time you also had uh, the International Joint Commission doing a lot of its work studying the low water levels. And, of course, now we're seeing those water levels come back up. Um, oh, Yeah and i uh, i wrote a story for this week's paper and we're looking at a couple more inches i think we're 9 inches above may of last year i think it'll go up a couple more inches over the next month they expect and i remember talking to you last summer about this about like oh what should we see and you said well we don't and forgive me if i'm getting this wrong but we don't we don't know what era we're in anymore things have maybe change so much that the normal cycle may not apply. Am, am I catching that right? And what did you mean by that when you...
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think that we're, we're kind of seeing that. Like, was it 2013 when we hit a record low, which was not only a record low but uh, in terms of water level, but it was a record for how long we'd been below the long-term average. I think it had been since, like, 98 or 99 or something. And, you know, the climate people were calling it, uh, you know, like a regime change. And... And then nobody predicted the polar vortex, and I think we had two really big ice years mm-hmm. and that really that that brought not only did the water come back up, and I'm going from memory here, but it came back up at a record at a record rate, yeah, and it just shot up and and that was because you know the whole the whole system is is just kind of like a bank account it's you know, what you put in and, and what you take out. And what we put in comes from, you know, obviously precipitation and, and, and also rain that falls over the land and then tumbles into the rivers that feed the lakes. So it, it's it's precipitation minus the outflow, because, of course, you know, the lakes are all flowing toward, you know, the, the St. Lawrence River and out to the Atlantic. Um, so that's that's the other side of the question, along with the evaporation. And what was happening with this ice cover was that the water was staying much cooler you know, if you've, got, if you've got ice, I mean, the lakes in a big ice year, they're still building ice into early to mid-March.
0: Mm-hmm. There's so
1: much inertia in the system. And, and so, you know, it takes a long time for the lakes to reach their peak summer temperature if they're still holding ice in March. And, and so they don't have that running start. So um, when fall comes, the lakes are relatively cool. And, and so the evaporation piece of this equation isn't as much of a factor. And what was going on prior to those couple of years was the lakes were, I mean, they were really warm. Superior was setting records. In Michigan, I remember, I'm going from memory here, but there was like a 80-degree reading off of buoy from a buoy off of Milwaukee, like 40 miles southeast of Milwaukee in June. Hmm. And and so when you have that warm water, it's the differential in the fall, when the cold, you know, gales in November come blowing in and, and all that cold air, they, it just sucks water. And, you know, Michigan and Huron can lose it an inch a week just from evaporation. And so, so that temperature got knocked out of whack for that long period of low water. And then, you know, we got those ice years and then it's been really, really wet. And so, yeah, you, we were always had this kind of comfort in the idea that the lakes have always been higher and they've always been lower. You know, they hit their all time low prior to 2013. I think it was in 1964 and then they hit their all time high in 1986. Mm-hmm. And so anything in between there we'd seen before. Well, now we've, we've gone below that 64 low. And I think the 86 number was set in October, you know, cause there's, there's, Annual cycles, and then there's the long term fluctuations, mm-hmm. so you know typically the lakes are going to peak in late summer and then start losing water and for whatever reasons they it peaked in October nineteen eighty six if I remember correctly but now we've we've gone past that number, I think it wasn't in october it was it was a different month, but that was the the bracket that we crossed over, and so yeah, the question is what's what's next, and unlike being on an ocean where you're dealing with changing water levels, but it's linear and it's in one direction. That's not the case with the lakes. Some of the scientists I've talked to talk about, you know, so the difference between the all-time high and the all-time low is about six feet, three feet above long-term average and three feet below. Well, they're saying there's no reason that couldn't be four to five feet. So you're talking Hmm. eight, 10-foot swings. So not only do you have to deal with this high water and all the erosion and, and all the damage that brings, they could drop again, and then you're dealing with the opposite. And there's no real solution to it. And, you know, a big factor here beyond just the climate forces is what humans have done to the lakes. And, you know, you guys have covered this, what happened with the St. Clair River. Mm -hmm. Historically, you know, all this human meddling in that river, they were dredging to allow bigger and bigger boats up into Michigan, Huron, and Superior, Back into I think it goes back to the teens or even before, but they did a big project in '59 along with the construction of the Seaway, and they determined that that dropped the lake's long-term average Michigan Huron, which are really one lake. Uh, again, I'm going from memory here, but like a foot and a half. Because mm-hmm. what it did was it created, yeah I think they said 18 inches
0: bigger, probably yeah
1: I think it was 18 inches yeah it created like a you know like a bathtub. You just, often it just also created a bigger drain. The river the riverbed got got dredged so it could convey more water. And it just permanently dropped the lakes. And that was a big problem in 2013 when we were at a record low. Now, there was also quite a bit of controversy as to whether or not this was an ongoing problem, whether it was getting worse by the year. And, you know, for a while, studies that the Army Corps did, which were pretty controversial, I don't think for the conclusions that they always reached, but for the manner in which they conducted them, it was mm-hmm. it was fairly secretive process. I and mean, even the people who hired hired this team to do that, and by that I mean members of the International Joint Commission, they weren't getting information from this group that they wanted. Hmm. So there was a lot of suspicion and mistrust going on. But, but they concluded that, yeah, you know, the lake or the river, and we're talking about the St. Clair River, which drains Lake Huron toward Lake Erie. Um, had continued to erode for a while and had further lowered the long-term average of the lakes by like another five inches or something. So six inches and then getting close to two feet.
0: Wow. So, and that means
1: you go to the lake, go ahead.
0: uh, I was going to say, so, so you're saying like with, without that dredging, the lake we're looking at now would be two feet higher.
1: As I understand it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, imagine that. (laughs) And so it was, it was considered disastrous when, you know, everybody's dredging to get into their docks seven years ago, like we want that water back and and now we got that water back in then some and, and people don't want it. And so the inclination is by many people like, well let's let's do something about this. And I don't know if that's that's realistic because there is so much inertia built into this system that if we were to do some kind of a water controlling device in the St. Clair River we could be that let's say it's like a gate and you know, you crank the gate open and you crank the gate closed. And to do that in a manner that's going to manage water in a way that, you know, will benefit and you have to define who benefits mm-hmm. some people like high water, some people like low water, but you have to have a sense of what's going to happen in the next four, maybe even six months. And, you know, we're not even good at 10 days. No. And so you could be opening the gate when you should be closing it and vice versa. So, you know, this is a bugaboo. I don't really think that there is um, there is an easy answer, except for, you know, the buzzword is adaptive management, which you know, all I think about when I hear that is floating down.
0: <laughs> and, and you think of when you're, when you're making those decisions about who benefits or it, it's, it's not even, you know, for us in Door County, it's not even talking about Sister Bay versus Sturgeon Bay or Door County versus the Illinois shoreline. You're talking about this entire Great Lakes ecosystem that's all impacted by those decisions.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. You're talking all the way down to Montreal, you know, if if we're sending out so much water that it's causing high water and erosion down there, or Lake Ontario. Um, Yeah.
0: I talked earlier this week to Roger Miller of Miller Engineers and Scientists in the Sheboygan area, and Mm -hmm. he even one of the things he's talking about that we don't really consider as much when we think about something as big as the Great Lakes, but all these individual developments that we do in the, the Great Lakes Basin that add more impervious surface... And how that we haven't really successfully quantified how that might be impacting the the lake levels and and the pollution levels in the lakes. Uh, we know it adds to it. Um, and then now you have uh, just incredible amount of hardening of the shoreline. By that I mean like the the riprap and the rocks and the steel piles on the shoreline. I was walking along Whitefish Bay, and homeowners all over down there are putting in new revetments to try and protect their property. And I asked Roger Miller. He said, "So you've been doing this for 40 years in the Great Lakes, and you've seen four or five different high to higher or just high water cycles. What have you What have you learned in that time?" And he's like, "Well, it's basically the same. Um, build farther away from the water."
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Down here in Milwaukee, you know, there's a lot of homes on the bluffs above the water. And I was actually just down with my wife in Shorewood, which is you know the one suburb up from the City of Milwaukee. And uh, there's like a nature walk down there, and, and it's just incredible. I mean, just these trees just toppled, and it's just chewing into that, that bluff. And, you know, you, you can rip rap it, but and that'll that, – I mean, I'm not a coastal engineer, but, but from what I've seen and heard, you just send the problem down the shoreline, yep. you know, the erosion problem. And so your solution becomes somebody else's problem. And yeah, I think I think the best advice is to live 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 back off the lake.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, and if you
1: think about this, there, there's no reason that the lakes have gone up. What uh, six more than six feet, probably the lake. We'll talk about Lake Michigan since 2013, and it's still going up. I mean, I don't want to like sound like gloom and doom, but what if it, what if it goes keeps going? <laughs> you uh- know?
0: You think about this the village of Ephraim is sandbagging the village hall and the Hardy Gallery out on the pier. And they put in riprap at the south end of town where there's where the highway is at at a particularly low water level. The storm that came in last fall and was really kind of the only major storm with a north wind from the entire season of that strength it, it damaged roads, it damaged, it threw rocks up onto the roads and debris up onto the highway. And yeah, you talk about another a foot. And in a major storm like that and a place like Ephraim has serious standing water issues, not just storm surge. But if you go up a foot, you're talking serious water on the highway. Um,
1: yeah. and What if it was two or three feet? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just kind of, it's, it's frightening. There's enough, there's enough stuff to. Worrying about America, well, on that, but, yeah, yeah. Hey, I mean,
0: think but about as you when you get some downtime, thinking about COVID and whether or not you can go and gather with your friends. Um, think about the water going up. <laughs> like,
1: yeah, right. Think about Chicago. I mean, oh. in '86, there was a big fall storm, and Lake Shore Drive was underwater. And so you put two more feet on top of that, and you know that that city built right on the water. It was a swamp. Yeah. um,
0: Well, and most of the, most of that lakefront is fill. So you take, and and it's unfortunate because I I love to bike. I love to run and living in Chicago for five years as I did, it was great because they were making all these improvements to the lakefront trail. And some of those improvements are already washing away. Some of the new pavement, some of the new bike paths. And it, it, it's awful to see. And of course now with COVID, nobody can use that, that lakefront, which might actually be safe, safer from just a high water level, too, um, because people haven't washed off the lake from path by high wave action over the last year or so. Oh, yeah.
1: No, in the 50s, there was a, you know, a a, fish, like a It's when the lake sloshes. Mm-hmm. I guess we can go north to south, but east to west. But it, it's, it's basically kind of like a tidal wave. And it was in the 50s, I think, there were like, I don't know, eight, 10, 12 people washed off a pier down in Chicago. They were fishing there. Wow. Or, and Yeah, died. You, just, uh...
0: Even in our office in yeah. Bailey's Harbor with the seiches that come in or, and the changing of the wind direction, we're, we're right next to the Bailey's Harbor Marina and the backyard will go from just exposed mud to the water being up to the top of the, the marina pier within 20 minute periods at some mm-hmm. points, up and down 12 to 15 inches just with that wow. as that water sloshes in and out. It's pretty remarkable to, to look at it because <laughs> the first time I noticed it last year, because it, it really got... It had always happened but last year it just started to happen in such a more dramatic way that I was like, uh, what's going on here? <laughs> what is this storm? Cause it doesn't seem like there's this massive storm outside. And then suddenly this water just rolls in You know, cause of course, cause it's caused by wind action and, and wave action that's starting so far away from us. But, um, go ahead.
1: Yeah. No. And I also think, you know, uh, barometric pressure has something to do with it too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, here in Milwaukee, you know, some of the rivers, there's, um, marinas on the rivers and they were having the same thing all of a sudden boom here comes the water so yeah it's it's interesting times
0: um so a lot of your other work has been invasive species related and it's kind of interesting that like the the invasive species might actually be more problematic through the ecosystems of the of the great lakes than the water going up and down but we as humans are so focused on the that that shoreline that we're seeing every day especially here in door county um yeah and it I wonder, like, you just don't hear as much conversation about invasive species. Right now, you don't hear as much conversation about any other issue other than COVID-19. But um, where are we at? Like, clearly, we didn't solve the invasive species battle. But um, where are we at in terms of some of those things, especially with, uh, like, the zebra mussels and quagga mussels and the Asian carp?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the mussels are here and aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, And the carp may or may not be here. But you're right you know, it's almost like a luxury for people to pay attention to what's going on underneath the water when they're worried about what's going on, you know, on top of the water in their backyard. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the, the shipping industry brought in a lot of, a lot of unwanted organisms since the Seaway opened in 1959 and they've gotten a lot better about just their best management practices, you know, for a long time they've been, so the problem is, is a lot of these These organisms come in in the ballast tanks which are used to stabilize a big freighter, a big ocean freighter that becomes a big lake freighter when it comes up the seaway. And then they discharge that water and it can, you know, carry all manner of things. Some of it Problematic and some of it not, and nothing's been worse than those mussels, zebra and quagga mussels. And so, since I don't know, 2006 or 2007, they've been requiring these ships to swish their ballast tanks in the middle of the ocean with felt water, with the idea being that you would kill or expel any kind of freshwater organism. And that did dramatically reduce the rate of new species discoveries, which doesn't mean new invasions because we don't even have a systemic program to be looking for new organisms in the lakes. But for a while, they were finding a new one every six to eight months. Hmm. Once they started doing this, they call it swish and spit, it dropped dramatically. But there's still things coming in. There's still things being discovered. I think two or three, um, gosh, I don't even know what kind of organisms they are, but they were found in Lake Erie in the past few years. Which is, you know, a lot of people, advocates for the shipping industry, were saying that because we're finding nothing, there's evidence that the door has been closed. Well, there's a flip side to that coin, and that is when you find something, it's evidence that the door is open, and it is. Mm -hmm. The door to new invasions is still open. The industry is phasing in ballast treatment systems, like many sewage treatment systems, on their boats to further, you know, ratchet down the number of organisms they're discharging. But you're never going to get to zero, with that just because these tanks are so big and they're you know, they're not just filled with water, they're filled with muck and there's all sorts of life forms in all sorts of life stages that salt water or UV light and you know, aren't aren't gonna kill. Hmm. And um, you look at like and the tardigrades are not a problem in the Great Lakes, but they're a great example of, you know, nature having its way. And those are those tiny little organisms that they, they took into space and they opened them opened up whatever they were in and exposed them to, you know, the cold, harsh universe and all the radiation up there and brought them back and they were fine. Huh. <laughs> you know, we're <laughs> no oxygen, obviously, ungodly cold temperatures. And they just went into a slumber and came back and woke up and waddled around. Wow. So, yeah, you got to be careful thinking that, you know, there's, there's an easy technological solution. But also you don't want perfect to get in the way of really good and i think you know we are getting we're not really good but we're getting much better um at at stopping these new invasions but all it takes is one and it's off to the races i mean nobody heard of zebra mussels until 1988 or so Mm -hmm. and um and then nobody heard of quagga mussels well what else is out there that nobody's heard of that you know people in 10 or 15 years will be talking about like we talk about you know ash borer and zebra mussels
0: yeah i remember thinking so, the 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 mussels that would when they do the little stories on the the nightly news here and at the green bay news stations and they'd show the boats with the mussels, and i'd be like what is this boring story about this invasive species i want to get to the sports here but then i'd go to the beach and step on those mussels and cut my feet up and <laughs> then, it, then it starts yeah. to get real um yeah yeah
1: and it's an interesting you know the shipping industry looks out for the shipping industry as it should and you know, when they suffer, they suffer. And when they benefit, they can benefit handsomely. And it's really hard to quantify, like, how many millions of people now, you know, cut their feet when they go swimming or having to swim in these aqua yeah. socks, which is just no fun. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that cost is so dispersed that it's almost imperceptible on a property-by-property, person-by-person basis. But when you think about the 30-some million people that live in the lakes, That suffer you know just a little bit or you know maybe more than a little bit um it's it's significant and and it does you know beg the question is it worth having these ships in the lakes and you know when you talk about salties and overseas freighters um you're talking like i i it's a it's a ever fluctuating but i think ever dwindling number over over the long term it's now about five percent of the cargo carried on the lakes most of it's done by lakers and um You know, I'm not advocating to get rid of these selfies, but if we can't get a good technological fix, and if we do keep having problems, you know, maybe the the simplest solution is the best, and that is just have them unload their stuff before they get into the lakes down in Montreal. That's a deep-water port. And, you know, how you get everything, and what is that stuff? You know, it's mostly steel coming in and grain going out. It's not like it's Sonys and Nikes and (laughs) Toyotas.
0: Well. Um, When you first wrote about the St. Lawrence Seaway, you wrote this report. This has got to be 10, 12 years ago, at least. Um, I had never thought of the St. Lawrence Seaway other than what we were taught in school, which was as a great engineering marvel and this economic boost to the entire region. Um, You know, the short one-page version you get in a history book, if you even get that far into the 1900s in a history book in high school, right? But um, that really made me rethink it. I was kind of curious, like, what led you down that path to kind of question this long held um, intrinsic belief that we have now that this is always a good thing. And you looked at it, uh, and I just, think you said like the cost benefit, it just didn't work out in the long run.
1: No, there was one study done back in 2007 when they looked at okay, what if we didn't allow these boats in? What would it cost to bring in this material? And these guys, a couple of logistics, prof- well, one was a professor, I think he's at Wayne State. and might have been a Grand Valley back then and then a, a state of Michigan, a retired state of Michigan guy. And so they looked at, you know, what came in, in, I think it was 2005, you know, specifically like the quantities of what, all right. Then they went out to like, uh, rail operators, barge operators, truckers, and they, they tried to figure out what would it cost to bring all that material in by some other means. And the number they came up with was it would be an additional 50, I'm going from memory, this is a long time ago, but like 50, $55 million. And that was peer reviewed down at the Shedd Aquarium in a very public fashion. They brought in logistic experts from across the country and they just grilled these guys on their report. And their conclusion was, wow, if anything, you know, that number is smaller. Wow. And so, so, and, and this was, yeah, I mean, this was a while back. So these are, you know, if you wanted to make this argument now, you'd have to do a whole new study. But yeah. the argument being made by some at, the, at that point was, look, we're getting just hammered with these invasive species. Um, this shipping industry, this piece of the shipping industry just isn't, you know, it was a, they were bringing in at that time, I think the equivalent of one, maybe two, I can't remember, trains, 100 car trains a day, upbound and outbound, which the rail people said they had the capacity to handle. So, yeah, Um hmm. You know, we've it's when you talk about cost benefit, it's hard to say that we've got our money's worth out of the seaway, given what they that the ships have done ecologically to the lakes. But then again, we couldn't have. It's 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 unfair to expect you know them to have pondered this. you no, can't. Yeah. You can't predict what's going to happen. The other side of that coin is prevention is a bitch because <laughs> suppose you know they were warning before zebra mussels came in in the eighties that you know these could be coming in. And, you know, it could be problematic. Nobody had any idea how problematic it was going to be. Um, but suppose they did act, you know, aggressively at that point, And it's a lot like what's going on with the pandemic right now. And what if they just shut the seaway down? Well, the only thing people would remember is that we just killed a perfectly good industry because they wouldn't know the value of what we saved because they couldn't. Yeah. So that's the hell of prevention. If you, if you do it right, nobody knows how valuable it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a... Perfect segue to today, you know, like on Twitter, I follow a lot of different epidemiologists, some really smart people who've been studying these things for years. My sister has worked for some and they said back in January, February, they're like, this is the worst part is going to be a couple months from now. If we actually do get some, some slowdowns or shutdowns in place, if we do have to go to safer at home or safe at home or stay home, whatever they were calling it at the time, they said, Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're going to get hell on the other side of it because we're not going to be able to prove to them what didn't happen. And to a lot of people, it's going to exactly. look like a failure. And that's exactly where we're stepping into now.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it would almost be interesting to just to have one state just go, you know, do nothing. And, and but the thing is, you can't really do that because no matter what the government orders, people are going to take care of themselves. And so, you know, um, there's, there's really no way to, to, to compare, you know, what what the value of this this uh, safer at home has been but i mean it could be worse it could be
0: well and, and you could even well, it's it's kind of the, the the problem that environmentalists have in general is if some people I, i've had to jump into when I want to be like, just punish myself and punch myself in the face, I'll go on to Facebook and jump into a conversation. And I, there was somebody saying like, look, they told us acid rain was going to kill us. They told us we need a fuel efficient cars and we were going to run out of oil and this and that and that, and that the, the, the lakes were going to die. And look, it didn't happen. And I say, yeah, that those things, many of those things didn't happen because we took action. Like those didn't happen yeah. on our own. Like we made f- more fuel efficient cars. We stopped dumping cars tires and oil into the the lakes we we stopped a lot of these practices like if if you want to study that let's go back and like add the extra population we have now and let's assume that we all continue doing those same things would anybody be swimming anywhere in in the Green Bay Great Lakes region if we were still doing all those things I mean
1: yeah that's yeah.
0: that's what's not in it's really hard to to get that nuance into the conversation when when people really just don't pay that much attention anyway they just see the warnings and then they say see it didn't happen so yeah
1: yeah um they they see but they they cherry pick things and see what they want to see one question i I thought go ahead
0: go ahead um i was just curious if uh with the economic downturn and slowdown related to COVID 19 do you see it like any is there anything that's beneficial for the for the great lakes and the health of the great lakes out of this that this kind of pause in our economy
1: uh i can't i can't I'd have to think about that,
0: but nothing jumps out. Do you have any ideas? No, I mean, I was just thinking like it it, it almost hasn't paused construction. That's one thing that like has not slowed down. So it hasn't paused construction of, of shoreline property ho- owners. It's, if anything, it's given a lot of people a lot more time to take measures to harden the shoreline of their own homes to take protective yeah. measures. Um, but uh, it was something because I, I, you you hear the stories about like the air pollution in Los Angeles dropping like remarkably right away just by taking all those cars yeah. off the road. Um, but no, I, I couldn't think of anything offhand, so I figured I'd throw it at you.
1: <laughs> no, you know, it's not like you can just put cows on ice and <laughs> stop them from pooping. Yeah. As a matter of fact, they were dumping milk, weren't they? Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, and that's the, that's the big issue for Green Bay, Lower Green Bay, you know, just how much manure is, is coming down that Fox watershed. It's just way more than the land can handle and you know i'm sitting here in my minivan <laughs> i've got this uh i'm reading this book farmers of 40 centuries by this uh he was a soil scientist at uh wisconsin back in, in like 1900 and he went over to asia to korea japan and china to look at their farming methods in 1909 And, you know, he was just blown away at the elegance of their whole system. I mean, when you think about farmers for 40 centuries and what he's basically saying is these guys have been farming this land for 4,000 years. And here we are, I mean, this is before the Dust Bowl, but we were already having not even a century in in this vast virgin soil across this huge continent. And we were already having soil depletion problems. (laughs) And one of the accounts, I got it right in front of me. This is really interesting. He was talking about, He was at this farm where there were two pumps, and the pumps were powered by two cows. And it must have been, you know, like a wheel or something. And one of a person's job on the farm was to follow each, or two people, I guess, to follow the cows and catch their crap before it even hit the ground and put it in the bucket where it would be off and used for fertilizer. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's how meticulously balanced their fertilizer equation was. And that's how hungry they were for fertilizer. And, um, yeah, I'll read this. This is straight in front of me. He's watching this kid. He says, there came a flash of resentment that such a task was set for the lab, for we were only beginning to realize to what length the practice of economy may go. But there was nothing Erickson suggested in the boy's face. He performed the duty as a matter of course. And as we thought it through, there was no reason why it should have been otherwise. In fact, the only right course was being taken. Conditions would have been worse if the collection had not been made. It made possible more rice. Character of substantial quality was building in the lab, which meant thrift in the growing man and continued life for the nation. And it's like, wow, that's pretty elegant. Wow. And, um, and then you think about these sewage lagoons that we have and, you know, we don't have enough land to put it. If we did, we wouldn't have, you know, these horrible algal outbreaks and, you know, problems in the, in the Fox and Lower Bay.
0: Well, maybe we, maybe some of these farms with 7,000 cows, they should do that. Just have, a, have someone walking around catching their poop. For well, each of you know guys. they don't
1: have to do that, but the <laughs> thing is, is like one of the one of the first principles of pollution management is is consolidate it, right? Get your hands on it, put it all in one place, then you can do something with it. When it's dispersed, you know that's that's difficult. But so you have these lagoons. I mean, maybe you do start start treating it as you know the sewage that it is, and and you know reclaiming the the phosphates and the nitrogen and, and you know, doing other stuff with the solids. I don't know what. And the farmers have thought, yeah, that's going to be ridiculously expensive. We're barely making it. So we're not making, and yeah, then nobody wants to see a farmer go out of business. But, you know, if it means more, milk's going to cost everybody more, so be it, because we're already paying a price in, the, right. in degraded water quality. So that price gets paid one way or the other. And I have four kids at home right now, and we go through a lot of milk. And, you know, if we had to pay significantly more for it, if they got a program together that worked, I'd, I'd be for it. And, you know, that's the thing about regulations, too. When they're uniformly applied, industry doesn't necessarily, once they, they realize how to work with them, they don't, you don't, know, as long as even playing field, nobody really loses it if it's done right.
0: Yeah, I know. I've oh. talked to so many farmers over the years, and, and most of them, like, they don't want to do this thing that's bad for their neighbors and the place where they live and this place that they no. love. They just are, you know. In many ways, you know, they're they're generational farmers. They take over, and I understand having somebody come on your property and tell you you're going to have to spend a ton of money and do this thing differently than you've always done it. That's that'd be tough for anybody in any business. And I think we some of us lack the empathy on that side of it. But you mm-hmm. know, the fact of the matter is we've we've construed our our food um, supply and our and what we're willing to pay for it, and we've we've twisted it with so many different subsidies and and price controls that we're not really. It's not like a fair market for it, um, and like you said, we yeah. probably should just be paying more for milk, <laughs> and then that might help solve a lot of the problems and, and provide enough money for someone to to take care of the pollution if if it was regulated correctly.
1: Yeah, I mean they're 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 hardworking, doing the most important work there is, arguably that's producing food for people, but they're also working within the system that they've been given, and the system's a problem. You know, they're they're just doing what what we've set up. And so we're um, working within what we've set up. And when you look at this this water problem, you know, every state's got toxic algal blooms. And when you you look at Florida, I mean, it's serious down there along the coast because— you know, well, they have Canada's, a large dairy
0: industry uh, too, right?
1: They do, yeah. Yeah, actually, I think the biggest ranch in America is, is near Orlando. And it's like half the size of Rhode Island or something. I don't know what that means. Rhode Island's tiny, but it's <laughs> big. Um, but yeah, and, and then, and then you know, all this all this waste, in particular, uh, fertilizer, and manure, goes into this big lake in the middle of the state, Lake Okeechobee, and then the Army Corps sends, and that's a petri dish for growing microcystis, that, that toxic ruby algae. It's a a liver toxin, and there's a lot of people who are starting to wonder and worry and research whether, I mean, it is a neurotoxin to some degree, but it's been linked. They're starting to try to, they haven't found any of causation, but there are correlations between people who live near algae-infested waters and neurodegenerative diseases like, you know, ALS and stuff. Hmm. Anyway, um, this Lake Okeechobee just basically gets drained, so, because they're afraid that it's going to overtop. its it's all engineered. It's like a big it was a natural lake, but it's now got like a thirty foot high dike around it that has a one percent chance of failing in any year. And it has failed like back in the twenties, it failed twice. It killed one time I think it killed like three thousand people. It was just a wall of water came. And now there's like tens of thousands of people that would be in its path. So the Army Corps is constantly in summer before the hurricane seasons hit season hits, they're 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 drawing down the lake and that means sending all this foul water to the coast to like uh, Fort Myers on the Gulf Coast and to like the um, St. Lucie River, what's it, Stewart, Florida, that that area on the Atlantic coast. And they have huge, huge algal troubles. And it's not a partisan issue there. I was down there a couple of times and, you know, at these community meetings where there's a lot of, you know, wealthy homeowners who wouldn't normally be, you know, associating with, you know, some of the, the environmental groups, but they're all on the same page because it's not an abstract environmental problem. It's becoming a public health and economic problem. I wouldn't want to buy a house down there right now.
0: No, no. Between the, the rising waters and the the inability to get flood insurance for a 30-year mortgage anymore yeah. in so many places. Um, yeah, I just I'd read so yeah, I go short term, Florida. <laughs> you
1: want to rent everywhere.
0: <laughs> Florida real estate is going to be a very interesting uh, industry to watch in about 10 years. I mean, now, because people, people buying, if you if you buy a home down there now and, and you're looking at a 30-year mortgage, it's, it's difficult to get the flood insurance. And some in some places, I from what I've been told and read, it's impossible. So it's kind of hard hard to sell yeah. a property. Um, yeah,
1: and then they're still building. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining the podcast today and, and talking through some of this. And obviously, we could probably talk about this for for hours. Um, what when when do you think your next book is coming out?
1: Uh, well, you know, it was I was supposed to have a final draft done I think in September, but this COVID thing has screwed up. I was supposed to take a lot of trips this spring, and that was mm. have all been put on the back burner. So I don't know. It'll it'll probably be a couple of years. <laughs>
0: all right. Uh,
1: I mean, I'll be done with it, hopefully, within a year, but but then it's a long process. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's interesting. I'll say real quickly, um, it opens, or it, toward the beginning is just how it was discovered, and it was discovered by an alchemist in Hamburg, Germany, back in 1669, and he was looking for the um, Philosopher's Stone. You know, they're always looking for some magical substance that could turn base metals into gold. And he thought it was in the golden stream of human urine. So he got vats and vats of urine and cooked it for days on end and did some hocus-pocus. I don't remember specifically what he added to precipitate out what, but in the end, he got this glowing goo, and it was pure phosphorus, which doesn't exist on its own in the natural world. It's always in, in a molecular form, bound with oxygen, almost always. And so it was like this mysterious stuff, and then they soon learned that it was also highly combustible. It just actually explodes on its own if it gets above 85 degrees or so. But anyway, I was going to, um, cause when I tell people I'm working on a book about phosphorus, they kind of look at me like I was just diagnosed with something. They're like, Ooh, <laughs> uh, it's like, no, it's, you know, there's some interesting things. So I wanted to open the book with a bang or a wind, if you will, and try to make my own phosphorus. And I've got a father-in-law who's a retired chemical engineer. And, uh, he just laughed and said, "Oh, you know, don't think what the alchemist did is such an easy thing." And I got a hold of a guy at Johns Hopkins University who actually specializes in reproducing some ancient alchemical experiments—chemicals, work. and uh, he's like, "Whoa! Well, a, we don't we don't even have the equipment, the earthenware to take the kind of heat that they were using back then, and b, it's super super dangerous." And <laughs> have I tried? Yes, <laughs> and I've failed. <laughs> um, But anyway, yeah, I was thinking I got a turkey fryer, I got a father-in-law, I got some safety goggles, I can get the urine. (laughs) (laughs) No, I can do that. Um, But anyway, yeah. So I'm hoping that it'll be, there's all sorts of interesting side stories and just, you know, what the the lengths people would go to, to exploit lands and people for their phosphate deposits. And, you know, we're running out. That's the great irony here is that we're overusing it and we're running out of it at the same time.
0: Well, more good news for us.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I don't know what it's like up there, but it's a gorgeous day down here. And I am looking at Lake Michigan and it is pretty close to turquoise. It looks spectacular. And there's gulls floating out there and even a couple of sailboats. So, and there goes a motorboat. It's not all doom and gloom. Those lakes are still Beautiful, and they're still worthy all the protection and care that we can give
0: them. Well, thanks for leaving us with that, Dan. Thanks for all your good work. Keep it up. Uh, looking forward to that book whenever it comes out. And thanks for joining the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks. We'll
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at the Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com/shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.